Awesome. Cool. Amen. How are you guys doing today? Good? Good. Awesome. So excited to be here. This was a wonderful time of worship, hopefully setting the, uh, the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning, what we're going to look at in the passage. I had a, a Carolina fan tell me to not go over today because there's a Carolina game they're trying to make it to. So we could see that the, uh, the heart of revival doesn't live within <laughs> Carolina fans. Uh, so they like to put a limit on the Lord, but you state fans, you stick around forever long. You need to, maybe because you'll lose, I don't know, but go State, that is, that is what I say, go State, uh, cheering for you guys today, boo Carolina, sorry guys, uh, but man, I'm so excited to open the word, if you would turn to Mark 14, uh, we're going to be in the first 26 verses in Mark 14 uh, today, great storytellers are able to write a great story that captivates the mind of the audience uh, and, and the best stories are the ones that really hook us in and have us following along uh, the whole time. And they captivate their audience by writing kind of the, the climax of the story, the part of the story where the tension is at the highest point, where the antagonists and protagonists are, are often fighting or going after each other. And it's in those moments that we are just gripped into what is happening. You can think of your favorite movies, your favorite books. Uh, I instantly go to my favorite Star Wars movies and, and think about all the different great scenes that we see in those movies, but we all know about stories or movies or TV shows that have gripped our imagination and our attention. And as we look in the Gospel of Mark, we are entering into chapter 14, which starts the beginning of the passion narrative. This is the climax of the Gospel of Mark. Everything in this Gospel has been pointing to these next few chapters. In Mark's passion narrative, we see the Last Supper, Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection, really everything in the Gospel of Mark has been about these next few chapters. And we kind of see everything is coming to the climax of Jesus is fighting the Pharisees, right? They've been going back and forth, back and forth, and the Pharisees finally get Jesus to be crucified. We see Jesus and the, the enemy of this world are, are fighting, and this comes to the highest point of tension, heaven versus hell, good versus evil. And we see all of this unfold beginning in Mark 14. And we're going to look at that this morning. And hopefully your heart will be gripped by the story that the Holy Spirit has written for you that is true and that is real. And I will, uh, I'll pray for us and I will just say, uh, normally I like to have a bunch of different points in the sermon, but today we're just going to work verse by verse through this passage and let the Spirit speak to you through the Word. I don't think this story needs a lot of fluff because it is so powerful. Let's read, or let's pray and then read. Lord, you are so good to us. Your spirit is so kind to us. Your son has been so faithful and generous to us. And we pray that in these next few moments, your son would be magnified. That we would see Christ more clearly. That we would see him as our Passover lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Would our hearts be full of worship, devotion, love, and affection. And would your spirit move in mighty, mighty ways. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Read with me the first two verses. It says in verse 1, It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth, and how to kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The Passover feast and the unleavened bread were a celebratory time. This was an exciting time if you were a Jew in Jesus' age. Jews from all over the place would come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate these times, to, to gather with family and friends and honor God. 
The Passover celebrated God and his passing over of the firstborn Israelite sons and and slaying those in Egypt, the firstborn of the Egyptians. It was a celebratory of God saving the nation of Israel, allowing them to escape captivity. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread celebrated the barley harvest, but also the moment when the Israelites rushed out of uh, Egypt and ate the unleavened bread because they didn't have time to put the yeast in the bread and allow it to rise. So as they were celebrating this time in Jesus' day, it's during that time that the chief priests and the scribes are plotting the death of Jesus. They are trying to figure out where do we uh, arrest Jesus, where and how do we crucify him, what is our plan. They are plotting to take Jesus down. But they desire to do it by stealth because during these times of festival and celebration in the city of Jerusalem, there would be more people in the city than just normal times. And because Jesus had this kind of uh, uproar, this excitement built around him, they're wondering, is this the Messiah? This man who was doing these miracles, performing these wonderful things, he had a crowd. And so they knew they had to do it in a time where there wasn't a large crowd around because they were afraid there might be riots or uproars or the people might get mad that they take Jesus down in the city during this exciting time. But we, as the readers, must remember the significance of the timing of Jesus' death. Because in Mark 14, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be arrested in the next half of the chapter and soon crucified within the next day or so. And it is significant that Jesus' death happens at the celebration of the Passover. Because as the Jews were celebrating God's deliverance of saving the firstborn Israelites because of the blood that was spread across the doorpost, God was up to something new. God was doing a new work through his son, Jesus. Jesus was getting ready to be the ultimate Passover lamb for the people of God. John in his gospel in verses one, or uh, chapter one, verse 29 says, behold, speaking of Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, 9, he says, we have been justified by his blood. Jesus' death happening at the Passover is not a coincidence. It's a message from God that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the one who's coming to take away sins. He is the ultimate and final sacrifice that the people of God need. And so it's in this time that Christ is crucified. This is significant. And we as American readers can, can kind of read over that because we're not familiar with the Passover and we don't celebrate it ourselves. But this is a message to you, a message to me from God. Christ is the Passover lamb. Only Christ can save you from your sins. And so within this passage, we see a, a interesting thing. Some say that Mark has made a little sandwich in this passage because in verses one and two, we see that the scribes and the chief priests, they're plotting Jesus's death. And then if you skip down to verses 10 and 11, we see Judas is planning to turn Jesus over to them, to to sell Jesus for money so that he might be killed and crucified. But within that, in verses 3 through 9, there's this beautiful display of worship, affection, and devotion that is given to Jesus by an unnamed woman in this passage. Read with me in verse 3. It says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. 
But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this woman approaches Jesus, and she takes this flask of oil or, or perfume or ointment, and she breaks it and pours it over the head of Jesus. And for her, this was this beautiful act of worship and devotion to Jesus. She loved Jesus and was going to show her love to him in that moment. It's interesting. Mark notes that the, the perfume was very costly. And the, the disciples say a few verses later that, man, we could have sold that for the poor. We could have had 300 denarii. And you say, well, well, how much is that? That doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. But if you were to look at that, really that amount of money would have been around a year's worth of wages. You would have had to work for, for 300 plus days to have that kind of money. And, and some pastors point out that in that culture, it was probably unlikely that a woman would have worked for that much money, saved that much money, been able to have the opportunity to earn that much money. So likely this was a valued possession that was passed down from generation to generation in this woman's family. Very important to her, very significant, carrying a lot of value. And we see she takes it, breaks it, a year's worth of wages, a valuable possession in her family, and anoints Jesus' head. She gives it to him as a gift, an incredible display of love. But she's met with anger. Indignation is what it says. The disciples are, are furious. They even say that she's wasted it. And now we read that and think it's almost funny or shocking that they would think you could waste anything on Jesus. But they say, we could have sold that. We could have given it to the poor. We could have done all these things, but you wasted it by pouring it on the head of Jesus. But he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus doesn't see her actions as, as wasteful or insignificant, but he says it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, a good deed, and Jesus received it well. Her master loved what she did. It seems as if this woman understood something that the disciples didn't fully grasp, that Jesus was getting ready to die, and it seems like she understood that, and it seems like she wanted to anoint him, honor him, show him love, because what the disciples didn't understand is that the poor would always be around them. They would have all sorts of opportunities to minister to those in need, to love on them, to give them gifts, and during the Passover time, it was, it was common for them to give gifts to the poor, but even in that moment, Jesus is saying, what she has done is far greater, because I'm not going to be here for very long. She was preparing the ultimate Passover lamb for his burial. And it says, Jesus says she did everything she could. She gave all of her worship, all of her heart, all of her treasure to Jesus. It's a beautiful sacrifice, a beautiful uh, moment where she does not withhold anything from Christ. And I think that this woman, I think that this woman can teach us something. I think that this woman can teach us something about what devotion to Jesus Christ should look like. Because think about it for us. Unlike the disciples and unlike this woman, we have the full testimony of Scripture. We can look at Scripture and know all that Jesus has done. They didn't fully know what Jesus was about to do. They didn't fully know that he was going to bear their sins on a cross, die a brutal death, and raise again. 
They didn't have the New Testament epistles. They didn't have the, the full revelation of God's word, but we do. And so you would think with that in hand that we would have a devotion that would match this woman. But often, if I'm honest, I don't. And I know many of us don't either. Many of us would consider it crazy and irresponsible to pour out our savings account to Jesus. We say, that's silly. Don't do that. That's unwise. Many of us are not marked by devotion to Jesus, but marked by apathy. I think that is a danger that we face in the American church. Other places in the world, they face persecution, death, famine. We face comfortability, the tendency to apathy. I think this is why so many churches in America are shrinking, because we lack devotion. Maybe, sometimes, myself included, we are more like the lukewarm water that Jesus spits out in the book of Revelation than we are like this woman and her devotion in Mark 14. So we lack a fervency for the Lord. Maybe, and this is just a maybe, it isn't our holiness that makes the culture around us hate the church so much, but it is our apathy because we don't live and look like Jesus. But be encouraged here because God is not comparing what you do for him to what other people do. He's not saying, oh, look at what Jackson has done, but look at what this person has done. They did something greater, so Jackson, sorry, not good enough. He turns to the disciples and says, she has done what she could, and that carries the idea that she has done everything she could. She gave the Lord everything that she had and offered it to him as an act of worship. And so God is not looking at you and playing a comparison game between what the people around you are doing, but he is looking at you and wanting all of your heart. Everything that you can offer, everything that you can pour at his feet, that is what the Lord desires. Jesus is pleased when you were able to do all that you are able to do in worship and devotion to him. And for us today, in 2023, this looks like us coming into worship and singing loudly to him with joy and excitement. It looks like loving our neighbors as ourselves. It looks like treating the Lord as if he is the owner of all of our possessions. It's cultivating your walk with the Lord even when you feel spiritually dry. It's seeking the Lord with everything that you have. It's not about doing more than the person next to you, but doing all that you're capable of doing. It's not about outperforming your brothers and sisters, but doing what God has gifted you to do and doing it all for the glory of God. And so we see this woman gives us an example of what devotion to Christ looks like, what true worship looks like. And then our, our passage, like we said, it's, a, it's almost like a sandwich, and, and then it moves to the talks of betrayal, this great act of worship to treachery. It says, Judas, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Notice, Judas seeks them out. They don't come to Judas. He goes to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. We have the woman. There's a comparison and, and, and contrasting happening here. The woman in her heart plans on how she can honor the Lord how she can show him love. Judas, in his heart, plans on how he can betray the Lord, how he can turn him over, how he can sell him for money. The other gospels show us that Judas sold Jesus for around 
three, uh, uh, 30 pieces of silver, which is less than half of what the woman poured out on Jesus. It's scary to think that you could walk with Jesus for three years and then turn him over for 30 pieces of silver. But then Jesus gives his disciples commands on where to find the place where they're going to partake in this Passover feast with each other. And he says this in verse 12. On the day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to them, where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples to them and said, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Sometimes I, uh, I like to have a little fun in Scripture and, and nerd out a little bit. And this was a, this was a part where I was kind of like, okay, this is, this is interesting. Because what we have right here is either a uh, supernatural act of Jesus and, and knowledge, divine wisdom, or it's just like a really super smart act from Jesus. And let me, let me explain to you. So there's two options here. One, this man that's carrying this water Jesus doesn't know him, the guy doesn't know Jesus, just in his supernatural divine wisdom of God, Jesus says, that man's going to be there, he's going to lead you to a place, and they're going to have a room ready for us. And so option number one is God is just, Jesus is God in human flesh, has all knowledge, all wisdom, and just knows that guy's going to be there. That's option one. Option two, which I'm a little more inclined to, is Jesus made these arrangements with the man beforehand to have the room ready for the feast, because Jesus understood this. Judas and the scribes and the chief priests were plotting to have him arrested. And he knew that they were trying to do it in a way that was sly, in a way that was quiet, in a way that wouldn't attract a crowd. So they were looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus where there wasn't a lot of crowds. And so the perfect place would have been the upper room, secluded, away from the crowds, at a time when everybody else would have been celebrating their feast. But Jesus knew what was about to happen in the upper room was important, so he knew he had to keep the, the information from Judas because Judas was seeking to turn him over. So he moved in secrecy without the disciples' knowledge to prepare this room ahead of time because what he was getting ready to do was gonna be of the utmost importance for you and me. I'm inclined personally to the second option. Not that it truly matters either work, but I think it... Uh, uh, relays or uplifts the significance of what the Lord's Supper is for you and for me. But whether, whether option, whatever option you take, whatever, you know, nerd out option that you take, we see that Jesus is about to begin to eat with his disciples and he's about to begin the Passover meal. And Jesus was the host of this meal and there was so much symbolism in the Passover meal. So he was about to walk the disciples through this meal remembering all that God had done for the Israelite people. But as they're eating this meal, he drops this, this bombshell of sorts. In what was a time of celebrating and deep remembrance, Jesus says this to the disciples. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the 12, and they were reclining at the table and eating. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if that man had not been born. I was thinking about this, and then I was thinking about a popular story that circulates every Thanksgiving, and I would imagine if you're on social media, you know of it. Uh, There was a a woman named Wanda Welch, and she's a a grandma, and she was texting her grandkids about this Thanksgiving feast that she was putting on. It was at her house, and she was letting them know, so she sends a text to her grandson and says, hey, honey, you know, the meal's at this time at my house. Let me know if you're going to be there, and she receives a response that says, who is this dot, 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 dot? Well, she didn't text her, her grandson. She texted a, a, a random stranger named Jamal Hinton. And uh, Jamal was like, I, you're not my grandma. And he asked for photo proof, and she sent it. And it's funny because she's a white woman, and he's an African-American male. No, no relationship. And, but he asked because he had nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. He says, can you save me a plate? Can I come over? And she says, yeah, of course. That's what grandmas do. And so he went over and had Thanksgiving with this Random family. They welcomed a stranger to their table. And for the past six or seven years now, Jamal has gone over to Wanda's uh, table and had a Thanksgiving meal with them every single year. And I think this touches our hearts because it's kind of strange to invite a stranger to eat Thanksgiving with your family because that's a time of of close friendship and, and bonding with family members, not strangers. And I, I thought of that because For the Jews, the Passover meal was a time of of connection with each other. It was a time of of fellowship and communion between those around the table. And so Judas being at the table, getting ready to betray the Lord, blows my mind. Because we know that Judas was getting ready to break the fellowship at the table. He was getting ready to turn Jesus over to be crucified and killed. And what does Jesus do? Because I picture myself sitting at my Thanksgiving meal, knowing one of my family members is going to have me killed. I, I wouldn't be able to focus. I'd be staring at them, so mad, so angry. How could you do this to me? But we know Jesus washes the feet of Judas in the other Gospels. They break bread together. They experience this communion. And I think it speaks to the grace of Jesus to allow the most vilest, evil sinner traitor to sit at his table. And so as Jesus tells the disciples that one of them would betray him, they begin to panic. They begin to be filled with sorrow saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Will it be me? Will it be me? And he tells them it's one of the 12. Likely there were other people in the room, but he says, the 12 that I've been walking with for three years, it's one of you. One of my closest friends is going to betray me. But Jesus makes it clear He makes it so clear that Judas is not taking him by surprise. Judas is not throwing a a wrench into the plan of God. God is not saying, oh man, now now I've got to reassess, I've got to make some adjustments to the plan. Judas didn't take the sovereign God of the universe by surprise. In fact, Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as as it is written. He's saying the scripture has predicted this that I'm gonna be betrayed, that I'm gonna be turned over. And so Judas was evil, yes, but God was using the evil in his heart to carry out his plan of redemption, to carry out your salvation and my salvation. Many commentators and writers note the connection between this passage and Psalm 41. Psalm 41 speaks of a poor but righteous suffering man who is betrayed by a close friend 
And verse 9 in Psalm 41 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We know that Christ was not surprised, but he did bear an emotional pain from the betraying of Judas, the act of treachery. And we know that throughout the night, the different disciples were going to turn their backs on Christ. Peter would deny him. Others would fall asleep while Jesus prays. But R.C. Sproul points out that only Judas's betrayal was the premeditated one. Only Jesus, or only Judas plotted in his heart to betray Jesus, to turn him over, even, even in the premeditation of his sinful act, God was using it to redeem humanity, to accomplish his will. And I would just say this for you and I, this is great news. This is joyful news for you and me, that Jesus is full of mercy and steadfast love. That though you and I betray Christ daily, he doesn't leave or forsake his children. He doesn't abandon you. We were once enemies of God, but now Christ is our Passover lamb who takes away our sins. Christ is full of grace enough to, that he would allow his betrayer to sit at his table, to wash his feet. You and I would not do that. We would not have that grace inside of us. But what good news for you and I, those who are prone to sin, all of us prone to betray the Lord, but yet he welcomes you and I at his table. He looks at you and I as the body of Christ and says, come and eat. He says, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. And that is the glorious grace of the gospel. You and I are in this room today because of what Jesus did here. You and I are a gathered people because Jesus allowed his body to be broken and because Jesus is the kind of savior who welcomes sinners. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but he welcomes us into his family. Here are the words of the Lord as he establishes the Lord's Supper in verse 22. It says, and they were eating, and he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. And so we are about to enter into a time of partaking of the Lord's Supper, entering into communion with God. And so I would just encourage us, I would charge us to do this with a heart of worship, laying aside distractions and focusing on him. As they were eating, Jesus blessed the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks for it. And as Christ and his disciples observed the Passover, they would have been so thankful for the Lord's provision, for the Lord's grace in allowing the angel of the Lord to pass over their firstborn in Egypt, to, to save the Israelites from bondage and slavery. And as we approach the table today, we are thankful for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, 
Jesus became our Passover lamb. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that you and I might be saved, that God's judgment might pass over us, that we might be found sinless on the day of judgment, that when Christ looks at you, he doesn't see our sin, he doesn't see our wickedness. If you're a member of the family of God, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And that is what we celebrate today. Jesus' perfect work and sacrifice. This moment is an opportunity to give thanks for the sacrifice Christ made, to remember his atoning and finished work, to commune with the Lord and to express our love and devotion to the perfect spotless lamb who takes away the sins of his children. That is why we are gathered here today. And so if you are a, uh, a member of the family of God, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're living in right relationship with him, you are invited to partake in this meal. At Calvary, we practice open communion, meaning you don't have to be a member here. You only have to be a member of the family of God to partake in communion. As I reflect on what the Lord's Supper is, I love how one writer says this. You just close your eyes and picture this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. Just picture that, his glorified body next to our Father. And Jesus calls us through partaking of this sacrament to commune with him, to fellowship with him. And through the bread and cup, he calls us to remember and proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. Amen? We can be assured today that the bread and cup that we take are symbolic. They are not his physical body and blood, but we can be assured that Christ is here in a special way today. Like I said earlier, Christ was the, the host of the Passover meal, taking the different elements with the disciples, explaining their meaning. And as he explained the, his body and his blood, he was leading them in the, the new supper, the new meal. And today, as you and I are gathered here, Christ is our host. This is his meal. He is leading us in worship. He is leading us in the partaking of these elements. We are only gathered here today by his grace and through his finished work. This is his meal that we get to partake in. Let's pray.